0: Well, good morning. My name is Kurt. I'm one of the, if we haven't had a chance to meet, one of the associate pastors here. And I have the privilege of speaking this morning, of opening the word together uh, and looking and seeing what God has to say for us, uh, to us, for us, to us, uh, all of the above. It's good to have God speak for us as well. So uh, it's not a bad thing. So uh, we're going to be looking into Genesis chapter 27 And as I was preparing this week, it was again reminded of, uh, there's never a worry, uh, part of the speaking team at this church, there's never a worry of, what are we going to talk about? Where do we come up with what to talk about? Uh, And one thing I appreciate, and I'm sure you appreciate as well, is that uh, Tim and the the team here is committed to preaching through the word. Uh, There's nowhere else to go uh, to draw a source from. And so appreciate that uh, just in the preparation. And today will be no different. That will go directly uh, into the word. Would you join me in prayer as we kick off this morning? God, we thank you. We praise you for who you are and how you communicate to us. We praise you that we can open the Bible and see that, uh, God, again, you are revealing yourself to us on every page. Our prayer is this morning that today would be no different that as we examine and as we then introspect and let your words impact who we are, uh, that, God, we would be challenged and changed by it. Uh, We don't want to be the same uh, when we leave here today. Uh, We want to be changed only by your word and through your word. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. I would never claim to be a mechanic. Somewhat mechanical, maybe I could, you know get a little bit towards that direction, but definitely not a mechanic. I do, however, like to do things for myself and by myself to fix what's broken and feel confident enough to figure it out. Several months ago, I think it was last spring, I gave you an illustration about an oil change coupon I had. Only a few remember that. Had an oil change coupon and it expired. What a terrible thing. Well, it, as, a, as a way of progress report, uh, several of you challenged my man card uh, afterwards by saying you should be changing your own oil, Kurt. Uh, yeah, we got an amen over here. I, I'm happy to now report that I am changing my own oil. It's okay, yeah. As well as I changed out a thermostat on my car this weekend as well right? I think I've gone up a, another level. No? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give my, myself credit. But the point of that illustration was this. It all centered around this idea that sometimes desire, well, I should say more than sometimes, oftentimes, desire, when it's egged on by our own pride and arrogance, can far outpace our own ability, our reason, and if we leave that unchecked, even what is right. The year was, so oh, maybe 2003, somewhere in there, 2002, 2003. My wife and I, Michelle, we were, we were living in Atlanta, Georgia, and we were looking forward to spending a day together that we both had off from work, and one thing we like to do is we like to visit zoos, like if we go to a different city, we like to visit the zoo or, you know, aquariums, and we had heard that there's this fantastic aquarium in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Anyone ever been? Yeah, there's a few. Is it good? It sort of, sort of leads to where I'm going with this illustration. So we had set out and intended to go and spend the day, uh, just a couple hour drive north of Atlanta to Chattanooga, and it was going to be great. So we jumped in the car the day of the uh, planned trip, and off we went. Didn't take us but 10 or 15 minutes out of town uh, on I-75, and I heard a sound. It wasn't a clang or a Bang, or something breaking, like something like sharp and like impactful, more like a hiss, like a loud hiss. Like, hmm, strange. Enough to make me take notice and say, that's curious. I've never heard that before in the normal operation of this vehicle. Wonder what it could be? Probably nothing. On we go, right? Maybe 15 seconds later, I, as a good driver, you know, 10 and 2, looking my mirrors to make sure I'm aware of my surroundings, look in the rearview mirror and just see this cloud of white smoke somewhere behind me on the highway. And I think to myself, I would hate to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> on we go, you know, because we have planned on this awesome day and it's going to be wonderful and I can't wait to experience it. About 15 seconds later, <laughs> I look at the dashboard and the temperature gauge is rapidly uh, increasing, getting higher, and not just a little bit, but you could actually see it moving uh, as as it climbs. And I think, "Whoa, that's not normal." And I look in the rearview mirror again, and I say, "I am that guy. <laughs> I am that guy." And so I pull over on the side of the road and and stop, and I pop the hood, and I discover that we had blown a hole in one of our radiator hoses, right? Spraying coolant everywhere, all over the hot engine, thus creating the white smoke or steam and trailing it behind me. Well, again, I was a uh, responsible husband determined to make a great day with my wife happen, and I remembered, ha, good thing I have an extra gallon of coolant and a roll of duct tape in the trunk, all set. And so I said, honey, Michelle, we are not going to let this uh, you know, sway us one bit. And so poured some more coolant in the car, wrapped as much duct tape around this hose as I could, and off we went. I made it about 1.1 mile down the road, and the temperature gauge again, weird, <laughs> I don't know why. It started rocketing skyward again. And it went on back and forth like this. Uh, I said, well, okay, I'm I'm still not going to, you know, throw in the towel. And so I pulled off at an exit, went to a convenience store, bought more coolant, more water, and just started pouring it in the radiator, thinking we're going to make this happen. Somehow, magically, this is just going to fix itself, right? Would you be stunned if I told you it didn't fix itself, (laughs) Right? I did finally come to the conclusion that, okay, we're not making it to Chattanooga, but I I also, you know, now I'm annoyed and frustrated that the long-planned and hoped-for event that we had set on our calendars wasn't going to happen, but now I'm going to be stuck with like a tow truck bill? No way. Uh Uh-uh. I can limp it back to the apartment. I can make it back to to there at least. Didn't, Didn't make it. So sure enough, it didn't take long. I was dead on the side of the road. Tow truck comes, hauls it away, and we spent our long hoped for and planned date day uh, sitting in the waiting room of a dusty, greasy mechanic shop uh, for hours only for them to come out and say, well, uh, Mr. Huber, you have uh, sufficiently killed your car. (laughs) Uh, Blown the engine, overheated to the point of no return. For what? I had killed a car over a $20 radiator hose because I just knew the way to get what I wanted. I just knew it was going to work. I had to have it. Chasing hard after what I desired had good intentions, a great day with my wife, but moving all sorts of lines around what is right left me smoking on the side of I-75. Our focus point this morning is this. and the The phrase, the theme that I want you to remember, and just let God speak to you throughout the week, is this, and that is, a heart formed, led by my own longings and desires, is treacherous. But a heart inherited from and led by God is glad. So we look at this passage in Genesis. Genesis chapter 27 is where our next step is in our journey through Genesis. I'm not going to read every single verse, but refer to several as we navigate through in chunks. And so, encourage you to read along and read through the entire chapter, uh, but we're not going to do a word-for-word reading uh, this morning. The passage in Genesis 27, the story, the account, is actually prefaced by the last two verses in chapter 26. The last two verses of 26, we discover Esau, Main player in this story, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers, their parents, uh, Isaac and Rebekah. The last two verses, we find Esau in rebellion goes out and marries two pagan wives, and it says it made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. It made life bitter for mom and dad. We're starting the scene already with a sense of contention, of tension, We're setting the scene already with everyone all a little bit on edge because of what's going on. Kids operating in rebellion, parents operating from a perspective of favorites. Father Isaac loved Esau more, Mother Rebecca loved uh, Jacob more, and neither one was very shy in how they portrayed that. At first read, this passage can present a story of simply a deceitful son cheating his brother and swindling his father. However, throughout this passage, we are presented a front row seat to individuals holding high their own favorites and chasing hard after what they want in their own way. The account starts, verse 1 through 4, with Isaac calling his son Esau to him, and knowing his days are short, knowing his, his days on earth are coming to an end, Isaac in his old age desires to bless Esau with his inheritance, with his blessing as the oldest son. And so he calls him to himself and he says, go out. And Esau was a hunter. Go out and hunt some of that wild game that I love and prepare my favorite meal for me. And then I will give to you my blessing, your inheritance. I will bestow that upon you. It's a seemingly normal tradition. However, as we look at this, as we zoom out just a little bit and we remember back to what Tim has walked us through just a couple of chapters previous in Genesis 25, what Isaac has just proposed and put into play is contrary to what God has already revealed. It's contrary to Esau's own word. In fact, by Going along with this plan and taking his first step of action by going out and saying, oh boy, that sounds like a great plan, let's do it. I would love me some inheritance and blessing. He breaks a vow that he previously made with his brother Jacob. In Genesis 25, we read about how Esau traded Jacob his birthright for a bowl of stew. Coming in famished from the field, he said, trade me, you know, give me some of that stew. And Jacob, seizing the advantage there, says, sell me your birthright. And they made the swap, birthright for stew, and made a vow to that. Esau acts like this has never occurred in what he's doing here. In Isaac's plan, the dad's plan, ignores what the Lord has already spoken to Rebekah about the future. God came to Rebekah and told her that you have twins growing inside of you. And as they grow, the older will serve the younger. This plan is totally contrary to what God has already said and revealed to them. And in this, we see the truth of my human condition, of any human condition. That chasing hard after my own desires by my own way, my own words and commitments, even they will not constrain me. We like to think that we can hold ourselves accountable by our own words. I would never do that, or I would never say such a thing, or try to govern ourselves. But here's a a great example of how we are powerless to try to govern ourselves because our human condition, our heart's desire desires what it wants and will stop at nothing to attain it if we leave it unchecked. As we read on in the passage, verses 5 through 13, Rebekah hears her husband, Isaac, give this plan, and not to be outdone, she enacts her own plan to establish her own favorite son. She calls Jacob, reveals this plan, your father is planning on blessing your brother Esau, and quick, go, kill two animals, two, two goats from the flock, and bring them to me, and I will make the favorite meal. And then you can disguise yourself as your brother Esau and go into your father, and he will think you are Esau, and he will bless you instead. In her own heart's desire to secure and to promote Jacob, envious of what Esau might receive and possess, she's willing to engage in all manner of deception. She has this well-thought-out And stops at nothing, saying, this is what we're going to do and how to do it. And even Jacob, communicating a moment of resistance, she says, don't worry about the consequences, I'll take the curse. That is a bold thing to say. That should be a sobering, stop ourselves, short thing to say. What did she just say? What? Does she understand what she's really saying? In verse 11, we see Jacob's heart in this as well. He communicates a moment hesitation, but it's not because of any suddenly found moral compass. It's because he's only fearing the consequence as well. doesn't have a thought about whether this is actually right or a good thing to do, but only, oh, that would kind of stink if, if we got caught, but I sure hope we pull it off. Again, a heart formed and led by my own longings and desires is treacherous. Unfortunately, Every angle of this passage provides a picture of the sinful heart demanding its own way. I want what you have and will stop at nothing until I possess it for myself. It's also unfortunate that I have no real connection to this idea. Usually we're appreciative when the the speaker has a working knowledge of the subject. To have been touched by the struggle being communicated... Alas, I cannot relate to longing after what someone else possesses. Is it, is it hot in here? I just, I have no idea what it's like to long for what someone else possesses. I appreciate the humor, of course, in the laugh, but at the same time, I want to call out how such a small thing can become such bondage to our soul. Football? Really, Kurt? This is... Yeah, really. And I don't think I'm the only one. I must admit some vulnerability here that I find myself getting and can find myself getting far too involved, letting sports outcomes to my countenance. Does this scenario sound familiar to anyone that... Get the big W, and the days are better, the sun is shinier, life is more meaningful. However, we take the L, we sulk and swear and snap at those around us and have a grumpy, mopey Monday, or maybe even longer into the week. Just me? <laughs> I can't remember back that far. Can't remember back that far. <laughs> 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 It's hard to believe, hard to believe, I know this is, it says, you guys look at me here this morning, but behind this boyish charm and good humor beats a human heart vulnerable to ignition within competition. Talking this out with my wife and recognizing this yet again in myself and being tired of it. I said, Michelle, my, my commitment, and this is all coming to a head, of course, when the Bills were playing the Chiefs uh, a couple of weeks ago. I said, this is my goal, Michelle. I said, I just don't want to be a dodo. So don't be a dodo is the mantra in our house. And I encourage you, You feel free to adopt that one uh, as well. And, and we can encourage one another as we look at each other and say, don't be a dodo, and we know what it means, right? Winning the Super Bowl, it looks pretty cool, and you've all told me it's quite swell, But what does that do for us, really? You get a hat. The The game is played and wide right. It's fine, Kurt. It's fine. Don't be a dodo. All right? Losing the Super Bowl? Well, I've experienced that four times in a row. And (laughs) let me tell you, I don't know what's going to happen next week, but I am here to tell you and encourage you that it doesn't have to burn your house down. Right? Either way, through gain or loss, forming our heart through the longings of what someone else has possessed, experienced, or is positioned to do or attain will lead us to unexpected places. And those are not a good, good unexpected place. Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, Jacob, four individual hearts careening wildly after what they wanted and how they wanted to attain it brought them to some unexpected places, all of them in bondage to the same thing. I want what I want. A heart formed and led by my own longings and desires is truly treacherous. Reading how this unfolded can be quite shocking. The absurdity of it, really, the absurdity of the scene, verses 14 through 26. We see the picture of an old man desperate for some food, governed by his appetite, governed to the the point that he totally distrusts his own discernment. Several times in this passage, he asks the question, there's there's a bell ringing in his head. He says, are are you really my son? As Jacob comes to him in deceit and disguise. But I think Isaac knew something was off, even saying, your voice is that of Jacob, but you feel like a, a hairy Esau. What's going on here? But the smell of the food, of what he was about to eat, his favorite meal was so great. He's like, I can just, you know, overlook this. It's probably fine and yum, yum. I want to eat some food. A wife pulling strings like a puppeteer. Rebecca treating her husband with contempt, taking advantage of him in his condition, knowing that his senses are a little bit dulled, He can't see real well, and so to get what I want, I can concoct a scheme that will take advantage of that to make sure that what I want is positioned to take place. The absurdity of one son is literally dressed like a goat. What did that even look like? Like this ridiculous cartoon where he's like wearing this like goat skin and like patches and like, here dad, you know, feel my arm and it is goat hair and... And again, like, holy moly, how how hairy was Esau that even even a goat skin is like, "Oh yeah, that could be yeah, that could be Esau." That's amazing. Jacob willingly deceives his father three times here to the point of blasphemy, where it says... Isaac said to his son, how how is it that you got back so quick, that you found success and were able to prepare this food for me so quickly? And Jacob has the audacity to say in, in his heart that is so treacherous, says, well, the Lord gave me success. When we are being led by our own heart, by the demands of this is what I want, it is amazing what we will again rationalize and talk ourselves into, even inviting God into our deceit, is what Jacob does. The other song, Esau, is totally lost in the obliviousness of, I can do whatever I want. It's totally against the vow that I've already taken, but yeah, I am going to go out and get that game and make this meal and come back and get this blessing, even though I've already sold it away. Esau's totally focused on himself. And all of them end up in unexpected places when the reality of what has transpired comes out in the open as Esau returns, prepares the meal, brings it to his father, and, huh, what? What's going on here? No, I already ate. Who? Well, then who was that? It was Jacob who deceived me, and I gave away the blessing. I gave him the blessing, and boom, everything explodes. Everybody is in an unexpected place. This whole thing is crooked and corrupt. And it may seem strange or dark to have such a focus on the negative. But we need to clearly see the human condition. And not just a 30,000 foot view. Not just of, oh yeah, I sort of agree with that. No, I'm, I'm talking about I need to see my part in this my ownership equity, my own heart within this reality. It's fun to laugh and and look back with just a smirk and say, I blew up a car because of a stupid $20 part. But what does that look like in flesh and blood life? What does that look like in pursuing what is right in a relationship with God? What's the difference between me and this family here in Genesis 27? And the answer is nothing. For every one of us in this room, what is the difference between ourselves and this family here? There is nothing that's different. All of us are susceptible to the sin of a wild, out of control heart, letting it Govern us and control us to the point of it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and left unchecked will lead us to unexpected places. This morning, that's only half the story. A heart formed and led by my own longings and desires is treacherous, but a heart inherited from and led by God is glad. We see the beginning glimpse of this in verses 26 through 29. So we see that seemingly as we, as we look at that, and again, at first glance, Rebecca and Jacob got away with it, right? They've won. Their cleverness succeeds, and Jacob receives the coveted blessing. How can this be? It almost seems like God rewards this plan and scheme. He let it, let it happen. The reality is, again, as you look at the whole picture, the reality is that Rebecca and Jacob gain nothing for their effort. They gained nothing from their plan. What did they change that God already said was going to happen? Nothing's different. God already said the older would serve the younger. He already said that this would take place. God has spoken this reality. This is simply an example, this is the greatest example of A deceitful, the deceitful heart of humans, their attempt to force their own will into God's. And the result of that is never gain, but only loss. Here we have a family exploded and divided. Response to this, verses 30 verse 30 through 46, we see the the impact uh, of this. We find Isaac when confronted with the reality of what's just taken place, of how he has been deceived. It says he is shaking uncontrollably or trembling uncontrollably. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm sure part of it, the majority of it is like, I cannot believe what just happened, that my son would do this to me, and I've given away the blessing. A mother, Rebecca, as we see here, as we keep reading, who will never see her favorite son again, Jacob is sent off into exile because Esau is so mad he's vowed, muttered murderous threats in his heart saying, I'm just gonna kill my brother. That's that's all there is to it. Rebecca, hearing this and fearing for her son, sends him away into isolation and she never sees him again. That's the result of her plan, the reward for her scheme. Esau, bitter with loss, again, has his heart set on fire with revenge and Jacob flees for his life. Fearful of his brother. Yet in this wreckage, we see a spark. In the aftermath of deception, we're reminded of a beautiful truth, a truth that prevails, a truth that's present all along. In his book, Preaching the Word. R. Kent Hughes talks about this passage and he says this, the invincible determination of God will see to it that his people are sanctified. Friends, that is a lightning bolt sentence as we think about that and put it into the context of every situation in our lives. The invincible determination of God will see to it that his people are sanctified no matter what. I read that and I found myself loving and disliking. I found myself wanting to embrace that statement, to run to it, to run from it and hide from it, all at the same time. Like, whoa, that is true. And so we see this spark flickering here in the wreckage of what has just transpired. Isaac's shaking, again, he's trembling uncontrollably at the the preposity of what just happened. Some of it, yeah, the stunned shock of what just occurred, but also I think there's a great deal of him being confronted by trying to live life by his will, will being confronted by the power of God's will. Isaac had set all of these things in motion. This is what I want to happen. And in that moment when it's discovered that there was this deception that took place and he gave his blessing to Jacob, not Esau, the words of God definitely came true and maybe he heard them again, the older will serve the younger. And now it's taken place in this most broken of ways because he tried to force his will into it. We see this spark taking life a little later through the book of Genesis when we see, I think, a different Isaac. We see a different Isaac moving forward from from this point. We see the spark in Jacob as well. Yeah, he, you know, participated in this deceit and got the blessing illicitly. But the result was he was forced into exile. But it was in this exile we see God begin to form his heart where he comes back and is a different person. Even has his name changed. Esau even though he's he's muttering murderous threats about his brother, we see a spark in him in that, again, this passage started by him taking foreign wives in rebellion. If we fast forward a little further in this passage, we see Esau paying attention to Jacob's departure and what his parents' words were to Jacob. He paid attention to them, and then fast forward just a little bit to 28.8 in Genesis, and we see that for the first time, esau is acting upon the wisdom words of his parents we see a change in esau the beginnings of change in esau the invincible determination of god will see to it that his people are sanctified no matter what in every situation in every scenario god is working to bring us closer to him As we need to see the reality of the human condition, we also need to be reminded just as much that a heart inherited from and led by God is glad. When I am confronted by the volatility, the strain, the emptiness of my own longings and desires, when I find myself busted on the side of the road like Feeling broken and beyond repair, despite good intentions, I need to hear this reminder. A heart from God is glad. So, in those moments, this morning, I trust that God, as He does, can put a finger on that thing that you are holding on to, saying, This is my pursuit. This is my chase. This is my thing of utmost value. And this is what I am willing to move heaven and earth to possess. God knows what that is. And as he puts his finger on it, it's going to leave us feeling like, wow, I am definitely aware of my treacherous heart. And we may be the ones trembling and shaking uncontrollably again with the reality of our own treacherous heart. What to do in those moments? God doesn't leave us trembling and shaking, wondering, is this the end? There are three truths to speak to a treacherous heart this morning. The first is this. The first truth is Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. The first little spark of an appetite or a desire or a pursuit out of control is this little lie that we believe that I don't have enough. There's something that I lack. I need more of fill-in-the-blank. We speak and say and shout to a treacherous heart, Jesus is enough. Psalm 16. Psalm 16.5, and I'm going to read through 11, but really memorize Psalm 16.5. It says, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. No one else... Nowhere else will we find fulfillment. Lord, you are my portion, my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Shoal. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Again, where is your striving? And what is it that you're longing for and desire? Has it been egged on by your own pride and arrogance? It's trampled your ability and reason and moved the line of what is right and good and holy and pleasing to the Lord? To the heart that says, I need something else, we say Jesus is enough. The second truth to say to a treacherous heart is Jesus is redeeming. Jesus is redeeming. What happens to broken things? They don't fix themselves, nor can I fix them. I couldn't fix a car with duct tape and coolant. It's ridiculous. That's not, that's, not, that's not what's needed. It needed the hand of a mechanic. When we are broken and on the side of the road, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He is redeeming. Our inheritance is from God. From Old Testament to the New Testament, we see this picture of Jesus is the better everything. Jesus is the better Adam, the better Moses, Joseph, David. He's the better shepherd, the better prophet. He is a better covenant. He's the better high priest. He's a better sacrifice, and he is a better inheritance. Again, what are we striving for? The hope that Jesus, re- is, <clears throat> Jesus is redeeming is found in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. It says, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will to be the praise and glorious, of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. In him, we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will so that we who had already put our hope in Christ might bring praise to his glory. In him, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Jesus is redeeming. There is no one so far broken, so far gone, that is beyond the Redeemer's touch. The invincible determination of God will see to it that his people are sanctified. And so if we find ourselves at the end of our source, the end of our ability, the end of our whatever it is we think that we have that we've been holding on to, it's a good place to be. Because it is then that we can lean into Jesus the Redeemer and see that he is the one who does the redeeming. The third truth to speak to a treacherous heart is Jesus is faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This saying is trustworthy. And what an understatement that is. This saying is trustworthy. Amen. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So we look at this passage, be not confused or or mixed up at the thought of, well, it says if we deny him, he will also deny us. What's the difference between deny and faithless? Denial is shaking our hand at God and saying, you do not exist. Our moments of faithlessness is coming to the realization that I've been putting my hope in the wrong thing and the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, being faithful to do that and bringing us back to him. He remains faithful, even in the midst of our stumbling, even in the midst of our ridiculousness of trying to fix what's broken with duct tape and more coolant. How is that working for us? good to look at this passage again of, of comparing Isaac's example of a father and the inheritance in God, our father, and the inheritance given through Jesus. Even the best human father, it's, he's still human. However, our eternal father, even in our moments of faithlessness, remains faithful. Isaac, the human father, re- representing the human condition, there was, there was only one blessing, And so it created a scenario of jostling and competition to say, I better be the one to get that. In Jesus, there is no such thing as only one blessing. All that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We can rest in that. Jesus is enough. The human condition tells us we can't fix the broken. But the promise of Jesus is that he is redeeming. The human condition tells us that you're on your own. Good luck. Hope you figure it out. But Jesus is faithful. Let that be the message to our searching hearts. Our hearts that are weary and worn out from the pursuit. And fully give it over uh, to Jesus. For he is enough. He is redeeming and he is faithful. Let's worship in response.